Hello. In episode 32 of AS for Architecture, I spoke with Susanna Hagen, a leading light in the development of the theory and practice of environmental design, about her 2022 book, Revolution, Architecture and the Anthropocene, published by Lund Humphreys. If we are to think of architecture as something that is about performance as well as form, and by that, in this context, I mean environmental performance, and you can't achieve it or test it without measurement. You need measurement. You can also generate design through measurement. So I would like to see much more experimentation with bringing environmental metrics into the design process from the beginning as part of the, the kickstart to the process. A design process that is much richer, but also can achieve much more during a period of transition where we need to, we need to make up for lost time. Angel Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of A's for Architecture. I'm speaking this evening with Susanna Hagen um, who, uh, about her new book, Revolution, question mark, Architecture and the Anthropocene. Um, Susanna, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself, please? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I am uh, an emeritus professor of architecture at the University of Westminster, which is a very grand way of saying I'm retired. And I retired before COVID, so I'm getting used to this new state of being now. Uh, before that, I was professor of architecture at, at uh, Westminster, running a very interesting uh, research project, a uh, collaboration between Westminster and the University of Sao Paulo. And we were looking at uh, the design of public spaces uh, in the present day and in the mid 20th century. So it was a, a big, floppy, very interesting cross-cultural uh, study. And um, before that, I was at the Royal College of Art and architecture has just been taken like a rib from Adam's side and turned into a school of its own, because it was part of the School of Design before that. That was in 2012. And they needed a, a head of research and they needed to start a PhD program. So it was a very exciting time to be there. Um, and uh, in keeping with the casualization of higher education uh, in terms of labor, I've worked in many schools. So I've, I've worked at the Architectural Association. I've worked at East London when Peter Salter was there. I, I've had, I've had a, a great deal of luck in that I've managed to be in schools when things are really boiling. And uh, for that, I'm, I'm most grateful because it's been very interesting to oh, work okay. at those periods. So are you, do I pick up a transatlantic accent? You do. Yes, I have a twang. <laughs> I, was, I was born here, but I've lived in both countries. I've got two passports. My father was American. And in fact, my higher education was in the States. I went to Yale and uh, I was in the first class of uh, women undergraduates in 69. Amazing. Yeah. What was that like? That must have been extraordinary. It's rather like being in a men's locker room for four years, but 
they made some fantastic friends, male and female. Uh, so the the difficult bits were more than compensated for by the by the good bits. It was a and, and who and who taught? Who was teaching there? Who led that program then? It was Charles Moore was le- uh, leading architecture. I was actually majoring, as they say, in English and French literature, but I was minoring in uh, in architecture. And Charles Moore was was running the the school then. So uh, had he had he come over from Berkeley? I guess he was unless he wasn't running it. Maybe he was just guest starring, but he was there a lot. And as you know, was was uh, pursuing a very particular kind of postmodernism, which didn't appeal to everybody. but after Yale, uh, I went to England to practice for a year during the Queen's Jubilee. <laughs> and, and that was quite fun. Yeah. And that decided me, yes, I wanted to go on. I wanted to specialize. I wanted to go to architecture school. So I went back to the States. I went to uh, Columbia, to the architecture school there, which was run by Stuart Polshek at the time. And at that time, it was very much a school that prepared you for practice in New York. That is, that's what it was all about. Mm-hmm. And they offered a master's program that was three years rather than two, so that they could pull people in from other disciplines, assuming they had some sort of background in architecture. So I fit the bill happily. But after two years of that, I got quite bored. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was very little speculation going on or experimentation. So I did my last year at the AA. And the place was exploding. There was Leon Creer and his version of postmodernism on the one side, and Rem Koolhaas and his on the other, and Alvin Boyarski in the middle. So it was a very exciting time to be there. Uh, very, very lively. I can imagine so. And, did you, course, and, and, and your PhD, where did that happen? That happened much later. I did it much later. Um, I started off in practice. Um, I found I didn't have the the patience for practice. I think you need an extraordinary amount of determination and patience. It's such a long and difficult process Mm -hmm. to get a a building of any size up off the ground. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have that kind of patience. You either have it or you don't. I think you need to take enormous uh, satisfaction and pleasure in the process of doing it. And if you don't, it really becomes, uh, at least I found an exercise in frustration. It just moved too slowly. So um, I decided to go back into academia. And that's when uh, I was told I needed to really do a PhD if I was going to get anywhere in academia. Mm -hmm. So I did it at Birkbeck, which is a marvelous a university where you can maintain your work and do your PhD at the same time. And that's what I did. I see. So you worked in practice whilst doing a PhD. I was teaching at that point. Oh, I, uh, I was teaching. Yeah. Um, I was teaching at the AA, actually. Oh, um, you? And, and what was your PhD on and who, who supervised you? Well, I was supervised by actually someone who headed the sociology department <laughs> at Birkbeck but knew a great deal about architecture Um, from fortresses to, I don't know what else he knew about. He seemed to know about everything. And uh, he was very sympathetic and just let me get on with it really because I was 39, I think. So, you know, 
more or less a grown-up and knew what I wanted to write about. And he was quite happy to to do that, to let me get on with it. So so what did you want to write? I'm guessing with a sociology, because I, I studied under a sociologist, did my PhD under a sociologist. Oh, yeah. He, um, Simon Guy at Manchester. And, yes. uh, and yes. do you know Simon? All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Diana Mitlin, who's a professor of economics, I suppose, uh, development at Manchester as well. Um, and so I, I had gone in to that with a kind of objective of doing stuff and came out thinking about people. Hmm. Uh, what, what was your PhD looking at specifically? And was it inflected by this sociological thinking? Well, I, I had had 10 years where I went AWOL from architecture and I decided I was going to become a playwright. And I got some plays on and I got a couple of television programs on about some series, awful things. Go on, tell us the name. Don't, don't. No, 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 they are. They are buried in the archive. I, hope I bet so. we can look them up on IMDb. <laughs> no, you'll never find them. You'll never find them, happily. Um, so I, I could see my 40th birthday approaching and I was not going to become a great and famous playwright and public funding for theatre was was rapidly diminishing under Thatcher. So uh, it was time to go and um, there was no better place to go than back to architecture, which is such a fascinating rag bag of things. It really absorbs so many different kinds of people and so many different kinds of approaches. Yeah. But it was a very welcoming place to return to. Um, and so I took a, a year's history theory at the AA. And during that year, I don't know why, I can't explain why I started thinking about environmentalism and why it interested me so much. And having talked to other people and their sort of conversion to this, if you like, there seems in many of us to be an emotional connection with nature. So it's not a it's not a rational ethical choice as it is, I think, with other people. It's more of a, I grew up with this, I love it, I want to protect it in some way. So although it became a highly intellectual pursuit, uh, requiring a great deal of, of study, at its beginning, it was, it was an emotional connection, uh, which I still feel very strongly, of course. And that's what led me into looking at it during that history theory year under Roy Landau and Mika Bandini. And then uh, getting to know Seamus Yanis in the Environment and Energy Master's course at the AA, who was very sympathetic to the undertaking, and uh, encouraged me to pursue a, a sort of history theory approach to environment, so not technical but to look at the history of the relationship between architecture and nature, and also to look at um, means of designing, research by design, if you like, Uh, not by me, but by others, um, that would bring one closer to some sort of symbiotic relationship between the two. So all that contributed uh, to doing my own teaching and eventually doing a PhD on the same subject, which eventually became the book Taking Shape, which was my first book on the subject in 2001. That's amazing. That's um, a lovely journey to uh, through, through architecture. I think I often think that the way we kind of teach architecture 
or present architecture as this seven years of study is, which it's no longer going to be from 2027, I think, but mm. it's a bit of a sausage machine. And it's not really very realistic because, in my opinion, people come out too young mm. in architecture. And as you say, it's a, it's a slow game and it's so it, tenacity. And as you say, patience is, is absolutely essential to success in it, isn't it? I mean, but, but I'm, I love this word symbiosis you, you used about the symbiotic relationship between architecture and environment. Mm. Um, and it's sort of at the heart of the heart of this, this lovely book that you've written, um, published by Lund Humphreys in last year. Mm. Um, really, really interesting um, piece of work um, and eminently readable, which is not always a given for architectural architectural books. It's oh, almost it's Stop. almost it's almost a manifesto, is it not? Or it it has yeah. I it doesn't so. have the it doesn't have the didactic tone of a manifesto, but it has perhaps, as you say, that that emotional quality. Mm. I was hoping because really now I, I write for students and practitioners. I don't I don't write for other academics and I haven't for for a while. But my first book was very much for other academics and was trying to demonstrate that that this subject area was intellectually respectable. Mm-hmm. Um but I so, I so it hadn't been seen of as being in I'm, I'm no, interested in that. Even in the late, this is this is the mid '90s. You're talking yeah, here. Yeah, it wasn't seen as well as is evidenced by what was being turned out. Mm. It wasn't seen as being something of intellectual interest. Now, of course, that's changed, and um, people younger than than I am in their forties, thirties are turning out very interesting work indeed, which is which is gratifying to see. You know that. That hang-up isn't there anymore. Um, it hasn't reached a critical mass, but there's some very interesting people writing now, younger people. Mm-hmm. But um, this book, this book, Revolution, mm. question mark? Yes. And perhaps you can unpack the question mark. Um, certainly yeah. the world, the word is, um, I think, on everybody's lips a little bit these days, but the question mark is quite interesting. Um, I was wondering, so, so it's the fourth, book yeah. in a series yes an unintentional series but it is the fourth book in a series the the first was taking shape which was looking really at uh the history and theory of the relationship between nature and architecture and that went from well really alberti through greg lynn to uh to the then present day and then there was uh Digitalia, which was an examination in the early 80s, uh, sorry, 2008, of uh, the digital revolution in architecture and the way in which it was generating both very interesting experiments in terms of rather arbitrary form finding and experiments in uh, environmental design in sort of environmentally determined form so that you either had parameters you invented or constraints you invented or rules you invented, or you had parameters, constraints, and rules that were there, i.e. physics. And uh, these two were going in opposite directions. And 
it was, I thought, a great shame. So Digitalia really was an appeal for, for these two directions to come back together again and start speaking and enriching each other. Um, didn't happen, and I can see why it didn't happen. But at the point I wrote it, it seemed like it might be a possibility. And then there was a bit of a gap after that, and I became much more interested. I'd founded a, um, a research group called RED, Research into Environment and Design, when I was at uh, East London with a very interesting group of peers, some of whom were practitioners, some of whom were technical people, some of whom were students, graduated students. And uh, we became much more interested in urban design, ecologically driven urban design. So the next book was called Ecological Urbanism. And that really was about looking at the city not only as a cultural um, well, artifact and set of processes and flows, but also as a metabolic one and how one might bring those two together. What is what does the urban metabolism mean? And that's certainly become something that's much more interesting in many more people now. And again, how do you bring um, conventional urban design, which is interested in economics and, and the social and uh, the formal, together with the metabolic, the, the physics of the city, if you like, the the patterns of consumption, the the rates of energy consumption, the types of energy consumption, all the rest of it. And um, I suppose, again, this is a synthetic work. It's trying to bring something that's outside the pale, inside the pale, which was the environmental. And uh, this final book, I think you're you're quite right. It it I always saw it as small enough to put in your pocket didn't quite get that small but you know the student could have it in their coat pocket short enough to get through in a day but would give you essentially what taking shape gave you 20 years ago but updated and um more pointed but depressingly really still saying the same thing wake up get with it bring this into your thinking and your practice yeah Yes, it has that. It has that. Um, that energy and that. Um, that demand about it, which is, uh, is very rewarding. I mean, it's. Um, it's this. We've. It seems to me part of a, an intellectual movement in architecture away from the ambivalence of the postmodern towards a kind of. Uh, yeah, a determined kind of demand, a demand, a moral and ethical demand in architectural discourse, which has been lacking for quite, for quite a long time, probably since the emergence of postmodernism and 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 that textual textural mm. stuff. That, um, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I was always very leery of preaching. There's nothing that turns people off faster than being hectored and preached at. So I was. I thought seduction was a much more effective way than mm -hmm. than hectoring. I'm I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that was correct because one of the reasons I wrote it was I was locked down during COVID, and it gave me a chance to think about retirement. And retirement makes you look back and 
assess what you've done and what you haven't done. Mm-hmm. And as I look at what I've done, which is primarily writing and teaching, I don't think it's it's moved the dial one scintilla. I just don't think it has. It's it's very difficult to know how it might have done that. I think, you know, I may have influenced a few people, but I I haven't created what what we needed, I think, was a towards a new architecture from a, from another Le Corbusier, you know, someone who was going to really change things and be read by everybody and cause arguments. And I did not succeed in doing that. I don't think anybody really did in, in this subject area, although there are many, many interesting and extremely important books in terms of moving it forward. Nothing caught fire that mm. way. I was no. I mean that's the that's the open. So you, your your book is divided into four chapters: uh, overthrowing, converting, making, and educating. Which are wonderful, short, easily uh, memorable um, uh, sub subheadings in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in your first in your first chapter, it's not really a chapter. It's a bit more than a chapter. Uh, you, you you talk about the failure of in the environmental design movement to um, capture the public imagination, but also the professional imagination and the, the imagination of young designers, trainee designers, uh, in the same way that towards a new architecture, towards uh, the, 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 the high modernist um, movement did. And you, you say, why has the environmental movement not gained the same traction as the modern movement. And and, and a little later you say, there's been no environmental revolution in architecture. And this is quite controversial. I like this. and I want you to explain this because there is no environmental architecture. Hmm. Um, What does that, what does that mean? What does that that mean? Yeah. What I meant, I, I actually formulated that sentence when I was writing the book. You know, it's mm-hmm. taken me that long to realize that efforts to talk about sustainable architecture and, and an environmental architecture and a regenerative, regenerative architecture and all the rest of it muddied the water, that you're not actually talking about a, an architecture in the terms of an identifiable visual style um, that can inspire and excite and... Be copied or riffed on or developed or whatever. You're talking about a set of relationships between what we make and what is there. You're talking about a set of processes that enable you to develop more sophisticated relationships. And these relationships and processes need to be in every architecture. They can be hidden in conventional architectures. They can totally determine form. And there's a an example in my book called Project Z, which was a very interesting collaboration between Cambridge University and Future Systems, where driving a wind turbine in the center of an enormous high rise on Tottenham Court Road, all glass and a very organic sort of amoeboid shape, completely dominated by accelerating the passage of the air through the hollow in the middle of the building where the vertical turbine sat. The form was utterly determined by that 
desire to make the turbine as productive as possible in terms of energy generation. Mm. So you can go from that to perfectly ordinary looking buildings that actually are super insulated, very sophisticated natural ventilation systems, heat pumps, photovoltaics, and all the rest of it. But that does not generate an architecture the way the new materials and new tectonics of the modern movement generated new architectures. And I think for architects, it's therefore been extremely easy to place all this over in the technical domain with engineers, stick it in any any old how, and not really concern yourself about it overly much as an architectural proposition. So that's really what I mean by it's not an environmental architecture. So the the buildings covered in green array, the the buildings that are environmentally determined, the buildings that are buried underground, these are all asides. They're not an architecture. They're almost a denial of architecture in that covering a building in green is not exactly in a celebration of architecture. So that's that's really what I made what I meant about it. I see. Well, that sort of that, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a uh, it's an additive, isn't it? It's sort of something that we we tend to sprinkle sprinkle on top. Um, I mean, there's there's a famous one in Milan at the moment that people are uh, enjoying. I can't remember its its name. The vertical forest. Yes. Uh, it's got a. It sounds better. Bosco verticale. Yes, it sounds much better in Italian. Yes, and and it's a it's a really good example of that because really, it's a modernist tower block with planters on it. Well, that's right. And Edouard Francois has done the same sort of thing. He's done some wonderful things, but he really took it to an extreme. It's actually on the inside cover of this of this book, Revolution. It looks it just looks like a high rise of flower pots, and that's what it is. It's a high rise of flower pots. And you can't see the high rise because it's been completely obliterated by this greenery. But it's fundamentally still a modernist building. Yeah, a building that that's the logic of which is not actually based in an environmental. That's right. And emotive sensibility of environmentalism. And I think we've we're, we've moved now. I mean, it, it's so complicated. That's that's the trouble with it. And even in this book, I couldn't make it clear enough, I don't think, because I lived through these things. I think it's very hard for younger generations to read this in revolution and really get a sense of what on earth was going on in the 90s and early 2000s. Because at, at one point in the 90s, there there was uh, there were architects like Sight saying, environmental architecture, here we go again, must express its relationship with nature. So there was a lot of burying of the building under artificial hills and things in order to tell us that that's what it was doing. Mm. The implication being that all buildings should be doing this. So the urbanity of the city would vanish under under these hills, I would Mm. assume, if you took it to its logical conclusion. Then there's a, another thread coming in feeding this, which is actually much more sophisticated, which is uh, actually born during modernism when you get architects like Alto and, and Richard Neutra thinking about nature very deeply and reacting to it in a very different way. So Neutra's 
designs in Southern California where, where this became possible were all about the, the flow from inside to outside and that, that communion between building and site that he developed in such a beautiful way in those houses in Palm Springs, for example. And then you get Alto thinking in, in quite a, an interesting way about the standardization that one finds uh, so oppressive in early in industrialization. And he was saying nature is actually the greatest of the, the standardizers because standardization happens at the scale of the cell and cells are all different and we must learn how to design that way. So, you know, we mustn't mass produce the same components for the same buildings. We must, we must reproduce, we must produce buildings that are as responsive and highly differentiated as, as the cells we find in nature, which I thought was a, a lovely analogy. Really. Yeah. It's um so to go back to this idea around modernism that the, the, mm. the excitement that it causes the excitement and its and its victory I suppose um, ultimately over almost all the world now um, is in your assessment due to its use of technologies to generate new tectonics um, apt for the new person the new man the modular, the 21st century industrialized, democratized human. Yes, that, that was certainly the case at the beginning. I also think more generally that the, uh, the narrative it created was one of optimism mm. and excitement mm. and uh, possibility. Mm. And the narrative in, of environmentalism is the opposite. I mean, design is an act of optimism, isn't it? You're, you're projecting something into the future. You're assuming it's not going to be blown away, flooded, disappeared. You're assuming that there is a future for architecture if you practice architecture. So to be contained within a narrative of doom is, I think, very difficult for architects. For, for architecture practitioners, particularly, who whose act of designing is an act of faith in the future. And it's very hard to be told that you're doing the wrong thing and uh, we're all in a very difficult position and it's, it's not exciting, it's terrifying. Mm. And we may be able to fix it, and we may not. This is this is not the stuff of conversion to to a new movement. No, as, as we've just been saying, there isn't an exciting, daring break with the past visually. The the way there was with with the modern movement. So, yep. sorry, carry on. No, I was just going to say. So it's it it was in, environmental design was was laboring under uh, uh, quite some burdens, I think, mm. within architecture, and I think particularly within architecture. And I think that's why in the last 50 years not a whole lot has happened. It's happening now, but not a lot, lot, a lot has happened in those 50 years. I wonder if there's something in this, to go, to come back to this idea of this, um, this post, so you're, 
this postmodern moment has mm. led to an incredible diffusion mm. in styles, types, um, languages of architecture. There isn't one language. And there's been various people in the postmodern period who've suggested this is the right way or that is the right way. You know, Christopher Alexander's pattern language or Norberg yeah. Schultz or whoever it is. Um, and I wonder whether that that is at the heart of the problem, is that mo modernism, high modernism, is identifiable. Wherever you see it, you know it. Like classicism or the Gothic, more or less the Gothic. Gothic gets a bit frilly in it Italy or a bit like a bit confusing. But 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 to know what an environmental architecture is, and this is how I read that quote of yours, is it it's actually sort of impossible. You have giant concrete and steel and, and glass skyscrapers in central London mm. calling themselves Briam excellent rated and you've got little tiny adobe things in santa fe and so it's this plurality that that me that means architecture has struggled to that has struggled to sort of sell the ecological or the environmental design movement yes and uh well, first of all, I, I would say that m within modernism itself, there were there were different modernisms. You know, there was Mies and there was Sharoon, mm -hmm. very different modernists with mm -hmm. with very different approaches and and indeed uh, understandings of what what modernism was. Um, it has degraded to something that is. Uh, driven by economics mm. and is much more predictable now than it was in in the mid 20th century or, the, or particularly in the early 20th century yeah so in a way postmodernism was was modernism was just um more of same and there were as i was describing about my my year at the aa um on the lamb from columbia <laughs> that you had Leon Creer resurrecting a kind of classicism with a very strong social, if not socialist, agenda and a return to craft and more natural materials. And then Rem Koolhaas with a, 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 an almost inconceivably different version of postmodernism, which was a, a celebration of an understanding of modernism that was really quite personal hmm. and pushing that um that desire for experimentation and and a breaking of formal limits uh which was all to do with the new hmm. um which is still a very very powerful concept in in our culture the new mm -hmm. Um, which is now being challenged, of course, very interestingly. Yeah, neophilia, I call it. Yes, <laughs> a sort of unhealthy love of newness, and uh, yeah. but 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 you, I I want to come back to this idea of this driven by economics that you mentioned because it it seems to me, as someone trained, I suppose under a uh, in part under a sociologist, you're likely to have a kind of synthetic view of what it is to, to to do architecture and it comes back to this way you were describing 
the city as an urban metabolism. It's a kind of to understand architecture properly and its potentials, you have to understand it in so many different dimensions. Mm. Um, and we don't do a very good job of that. And we don't, like, as an industry, we don't present that. You know, when we present our, our buildings, we present the glossy final thing, the moment just after the mayor has cut the red ribbon, and that's architecture, which is quite fascinating because... <laughs> because that's got nothing to do with architects. That's got a lot to do with builders, quite a lot to do with planners and, and technologists. But actually, architecture occurs somewhere back of that, or arguably, probably mm. a bit controversial. But I, but I wondered, you, you, in, in, the, in the second chapter you talked about, which you call converting, you, you, you start off by talking about modernist tracts, mm. uh, the great polemics, as you call them, um, and there's a whole host of them. We've mentioned Le Corbusier, but you, you go on to mention uh, a whole number more, um, which are... Everyone was at it. <laughs> everybody was at it. And and this kind of paper architecture, what do you got? Eric Mendelssohn, uh, Mies, uh, Charlotte... Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I, I mean, and they go on and it's a kind of type, it's a kind of thing that happens in architecture. But as you said, that that they're full. And I wrote down, because I... I, I uh, yeah, I wrote down this in capital letters on on one of your pages. Hope exclamation mark. Yes, they're characterized as you say by hope, and and the 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 modernist uh, the ecological or environmental architecture tracts uh, uh, are, are characterized by a minimization of human experience, and it comes back to what you were again saying about these kind of. Uh, fantasies about what the city might be buried under hills. It's a sort of self-abnegation that has characterized that whole genre of architectural literature about reducing not just the amount of stuff we have um, and the spaces that we live in, but also reducing the spiritual, emotional, um, profound experience of space to something that and, and that's an incredibly hard sell i don't know if it's true and and as you say there's architectures that are emerging which which seem to be turning that over but certainly for the last 50 years that does seem to have been the case i i think um you'd get vociferous pushback from from some people within environmental design about the absence of a concern for architectural history, for mm -hmm. culture, for the spiritual dimension. Mm. Um, you know, some of them are, are very much all about uh, Gaia and mm. the spiritual connection uh, with nature. So there, there is that dimension to uh, both environmentalism and environmental design, yeah. uh, which tends to... The Hobbit House end of things, you know, it's it's natural materials, it's small scale. Ideally, you're living in a village. The, the vast urbanization that's going on all over the globe seems to have passed them by, but at the same time, they are holding the flame for uh, something that, if you describe it in secular terms, makes complete sense and has been defended by extremely sophisticated philosophers. And that's the idea of the equivalent of human rights for nature, that nature must be recognized as, as something that is autonomous with its own needs and rights. 
and that we need to start uh, respecting those, which gives rise to initiatives like uh, the attempt to get ecocide listed in the UN as one of the four, well, it would be five with that, crimes against humanity like genocide. There was a very interesting uh, English barrister, Polly, somebody look her name up because she does deserve a credit for this, Polly Higgins, yeah, who spent a great deal of her later life trying to get this uh, accepted. And what it was very clever, actually, because it was intended not only to recognize the right of nature to be respected as a human being is supposed to be respected, but also to hold responsible national and business leaders for environmental damage. So you would have specific individuals you could prosecute for specific acts of environmental damage, uh, which would be very effective. It's it's still being fought for, and maybe one day it will appear on the books. But at the moment, we don't have it as a as a side. No, well, it would implicate our own governments, wouldn't it? They'd all end up in the Hague. They'd be in in the clink. <laughs> but it's, I I read a very interesting. This might make you fall off your seat. A very interesting tweet from Michael Gove today. Uh, Michael Gove, the I don't know, he's housing minister or something like that. And he was going after the one of the companies involved in the production and installation, I think, of the cladding on Grenfell. Mm, mm. It's a fantastic letter. And basically, he threatens them with the full might of the British state. And I wonder whether actually to achieve the ends of... of, of um, of uh, attributing agency and value, absolute value to 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 nature, it will come in these small increments by, for example, holding people to account for making a product that, when it burns, releases gigantic quantities of toxins, and that and that and that it will be a kind of development of a critical mass of small things rather than the gigantic piece of policy at the level of the UN. I, th I think you need to come at it from both ends. And, and the reason I say that is because we've basically run out of time. The, I, the international, no, what's it called? Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm -hmm. uh, the March 2023 report, has said we've basically got seven years to make sure that we stay at 1.5 degrees centigrade above mm -hmm. pre-industrial levels. I just can't see that happening without really large-scale initiatives, top-down initiatives, as well as all these wonderful bottom-up ones that are occurring at small scale, whether mm -hmm. it's in schools, whether it's in practices, whether it's in mm -hmm. businesses. There's a lot going on, but it hasn't reached a critical mass because world leadership is is so inadequate, is so lacking in vision or sense mm. of urgency or mm. willingness to to act boldly yeah again this 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 strength of democracy this idea of a pluralistic discourse is is um makes things very tricky but um would we have it any other way i i like you you come you come to this point that you 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 say in this 
in this chapter, in the, the second chapter, that there's there's something coalescing. There is a, ref, a, a, a return to architecture as a material practice that could restore cultural identity. So I'm quite interested in that because obviously there is the technological aspects around um, around uh, ecological architecture, and I'm I'm very interested in the way that you in the book. Um, come back to this these metrics this data driven quantitative kind of metrics which both prove the need and demonstrate the solution but at the same time you're also arguing for as you say restoring cultural identities and and how does that how does that i suppose work how might that i mean are there examples that you can think of where practices are are working at both ends in this way, from the mathematical, scientific to the to the designerly. I'm, I'm not sure I quite understand your uh, question. Probably because I can't remember what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Probably because my question is a mess. Um, um, what I would say is that I mean, if we take metrics first of all, yeah. Um, this is something that is conventionally siloed elsewhere. It's out of the studio. It's it's a supporting subject, the, yeah. the technical. Whereas if you look at uh, the, the early modern movement pioneers, it was very much part of design. It was part of the studio. So at its simplest, I'm saying that we need actually to bring metrics back into the studio in a much mm -hmm. more serious way. If we are to think of architecture as something that is about performance as well as form, and by that, in this context, I mean environmental performance. Now you can't achieve it or test it without measurement. You need measurement. You can also generate design through measurement. So I would like to see much more experimentation with bringing environmental metrics into the design process from the beginning as part of the, the kickstart to the process. So you look at available materials, you look at site, you look at climate, however conceptual and experimental and speculative you want to be you ground your initial design decisions in the material and, and uh, specific by analyzing what you've got. What is the behavior out there? You know, there's this swirling activity. Part of it is matter, part of it is weather, part of it is culture. It, it, if one sees all of them not as the same, but as equally important, then I think you start to generate a design process that is much richer, but also can achieve much more during a period of transition where we need to, we need to make up for lost time mm. with decades and decades, and we're really going to pay for it if we don't get our act together now. Well, so if, that's if really you, what I meant, yeah, by the metric. For someone who didn't understand the question, you answered it remarkably accurately. <laughs> um, that was brilliant yeah that's exactly but, well i've got this wonderful problem because I've, I've got to start designing modules for the master's program um, here at kent school of architecture and um 
And I'm trying to work out how to do it and mm-hmm. how to get us beyond this, um, this, this, uh, what feels to me very 1990s style of architecture, architectural thinking, which is, you know, a little bit of a sun path diagram, a little bit of a nolly map to reference the Renaissance for some reason. Um, and then we might do some photographs. We particularly like photographs of two different material conditions coming together that they're very profound and then and then we design a building um if you're if you're lucky you might get to talk to a local um uh, <laughs> and and but this is this is it and then and then and then it's down then it comes down to you know that you know those 1990s words like the haptic sense and the materiality and so on and so forth and it's all and it, and it has made some very nice buildings but it's not, as you say, it's not fit for the scale of the issue to hand, which is an issue of justice, and it's an issue of uh, it's and, and also, you know, I mean, I just don't get it really. I've never got why it isn't interesting. <laughs> what mm. what is uninteresting about our relationship to the biosphere? What is uninteresting about inventing a new way of living in it? a new way of making, a new way of being. What is uninteresting about that? Why hasn't engaged, it engaged us? And I've I've given various guesses as to why we've remained in the 90s, basically. Uh, because the but, 90s was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But meanwhile, things yeah. were in hell in a handbasket. And I... I I wish that the generation in school now and, and the generation that's that's recently graduated mm-hmm. had been my generation mm-hmm. because they're really tuned in. They get it. They they have a sense of urgency that no generation before them has had. And as long as they are encouraged to follow that into the various paths they're beginning to follow then then we'll be fine. What worries me is that it's too late for them, that the transition period now needs a lot of people doing the right thing in practice, in government, in development, in whatever, and we haven't got them. We've got this younger generation who aren't in that position at the moment. They're thinking all the right things, they're doing all the right things, but they're not in positions of effectiveness. The people in positions of effectiveness are rarely effective in what's coming at us very, very fast now. Mm. And what worries me is the is the uh, are the social repercussions. I mean, if we're upset by a few tens of thousands of refu- refugees coming across the channel in rubber boats at the moment, the millions of environmental refugees who will be moving all over the globe as a result of climate change will be something we won't even begin to think about, let alone deal with. Hmm. So you quote Gottfried Semper in your third chapter, um, Making Counting, Making, which I, uh, will, um, and we've already covered this idea around data, and I think it's a really... A, a, Perhaps numbers. I don't know if it's data or numbers, but something that we can 
rely on some stuff that we can rely on that is communicable but you you, you quote Gottfried Semper's saying that design or architectural design is about the annihilation of reality of the material material yeah necessary uh, if form is to emerge as a meaningful symbol as an autonomous creation of man mm. we sit, we were we remain wedded to this idea and it's interesting could Semper is also sort of cited as one of these masters of the return to origins the return to a kind of truer version of ourselves a better version a purer um less gross less industrialized less exploitative and yet there he is sort of in a way manifesting exactly what you see in the in 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 the in the um weird shaped architecture that that we kind of promote in architecture schools and is used as a device of urban regeneration and and so on i wondered if there was like how, like how do we get like who is the person to go to who is the next semper who is the next corbusier where where is this i mean you you've cited greg Lynn, you've cited um future systems of happy memory um where do we go now i i don't think we go to great men um i think oh, we go how dare you <laughs> <laughs> i think we go to uh five minds really of uh multidisciplinary teams okay and i think one of the most interesting things uh i discovered during the writing of the book was mm -hmm. the way uh arab uh organizes itself now as you know it started as a it was started by an engineer and it started mm -hmm. as an engineering firm it now has a very large architecture department uh, run by Niels Jules Sorensen, who uh, very kindly agreed to be grilled by me. And um, what I found out about what they're doing confirmed my suspicion that practice is way ahead of the academy in terms of uh, finding ways through this mm -hmm. and uh, creating a meaningful transition that might actually get us out this into a new place. And one of the ways they're doing that is to bring on board, because they've always done it in a way, mm -hmm. different disciplines onto the design team from the beginning and everyone can speak up. Now, the, the architect will make the final decision, but the input uh, from other disciplines and from other generations is meaningful mm -hmm. and, and is heard and uh digested and i thought that was that was something that could be brought into the academic studio mm. does it involve sociologists as well does it involve people who can talk to people who understand the values of everyday life of ordinary yes, there, who don't think about firms. architecture there are firms that do that we the, the the research group I started, uh, Red, um, worked with a firm called East, which is based in East London, logically enough. And they are all about that. Mm. They are all about talking to people mm. and uh, participation and um, listening 
And interestingly, also doing as little as possible. In other words, letting what's there materially uh, exist as far and as long as it is possible for it to do so, because it is part of these people's history. Yeah. Place is history. History is people. And so their uh, their priorities, their value system is is really fascinating as as a group of practitioners. So yeah, there are firms like that. Definitely. That's a very interesting idea. The idea of doing as little as possible. And I, when I read that in your book, I looked, I looked them up and sort of. It's an interesting problem for architects is that the solution that we have is architecture, but that's not always the answer to the problem. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, um, Jules Sorensen was saying that he no longer refers to his young architects as architects. He refers to them as design thinkers. Mm -hmm. And that Arab is more interested now in outcomes than it is in outputs. In other words, effects rather than objects. Mm -hmm. I thought that was absolutely fascinating for a, an object-oriented firm mm -hmm. to be saying. So they're they're thinking in new ways. They're moving in new directions. They're not the only ones. It's just that there aren't enough of them. And this has to be enough worldwide. It's not enough just to have a great number in the UK. It's got to be worldwide. And... Uh, yeah, we're in a race now, really. So why revolution with a question mark to finish? Because I don't know if we can do it. You know, can we affect the same kind of overthrowing of norms and the old ways now as the modern movement did then in the 20th century? Can we do it in the 21st century? Or have we waited too long? We've got the generation who can do it, but they're not in the right place now. We have a transition to get through, and I'm just hoping we can get through it. We, we shall leave it there. Wonderful point to finish on. Thank you so much, Susanna. That was really amazing. Thank you, Ambrose. I really enjoyed it. Ask a decent question, get a decent answer. Thanks to Susanna for the wonderful chat. Susanna did want me to add that her PhD supervisor was the political theorist, Professor Paul Hurst. Thanks to Land Humphreys for the ebook too. As ever, see the podcast description for all the links. Go buy the book, why don't you? And then share this episode. Thanks for listening. Cheers.